There is a lesson from history, engraved into the heart of all events, that is rarely said aloud but needs to be reminded from time to time. Everything that has a beginning has an end. Every story has its time to play out upon the earth, and then it will finish, and new stories will take its place. This is the truth of all events, and is especially true of the Empire of Canute, King of England, Denmark, Norway, and parts of Sweden, and possibly before he died, Lord of the Irish Sea, Overlord of Dublin, the Isle of Man, the Scottish Islands, and maybe even Scotland itself. He was only reaching the height of his power when suddenly it was to all come crashing down and a story that was being shaped across distant waters and foreign climes by men and women hundreds of miles away from one another was to all suddenly come together in one place, London. Our city was to find itself at the heart of mammoth geopolitical changes that were to see it once again plunged into the front row of the simple debate, who rules England? Who rules London? Who will rise and who will fall? And along the way, how many poor buggers are going to have to die before that's decided? Hi, my name is Saul and this is chapter 38 of the story of London, an ongoing podcast dedicated to telling the tale of London as a single narrative. In this chapter, we're going to cover the fall of Canute's empire and the chaos this caused. Welcome then to Things Fall Apart. As we start, Canute's Grand Empire is spread out across Northern Europe. In case you missed the last episode, by the year 1030, Canute was the overlord of Western Scandinavia. He had the loyalty of Norway under the control of his nephew, Hakon. Denmark was under the control of his young son, Hartha Canute. And the King of Dublin and the overlord of the Irish Sea, Sithic Silkbeard, had sworn loyalty to him. And Canute was about to gain even more power. See, there are some who believe, and I am one of them, that Canute had actually been with Sithic in 1030 when Sithic Silkbeard had launched a joint offensive upon the kingdoms of Wales to pacify them and bring them to heel. Not subjugate them, but curtail them, remind them who's in charge. But while there, Canute was able to use Sithic and his forces to end a problem he'd been dealing with for nearly a decade now. And that problem was Scotland. For the last three chapters of this podcast, I've been mentioning the slow burn, low intensity war that was taking place between the realm of Canute and the Scottish King of Alba under King Malcolm II. It had burned hot and cold with very few mentions of it in official records, except some clearly saying they were surprised and impressed at Scotland's ability to marshal forces and defences. Whatever was going on, it was clear that Canute had been unable to end the conflict, 
even with negotiations being organised by his in-laws down in Normandy. What Canute needed was a bold strike, something decisive that allowed him change the narrative. His alliance with Siddiq allowed him do just that. While we do not know what transpired exactly, what we think happened was that Canute and his men, supplemented by the Vikings of Dublin, made a sudden attack upon Scotland from their weak western flank on the Irish Sea. And this force made everyone who came into contact with it submit and very quickly. And why do we say that? Because in 1031, we see the quick submission of the King of the Isle of Man, followed by the ruler of the Moray Firth, a man called Macbeth, and yes, it is that Macbeth, and while English records call him a king, he isn't quite a king just yet. And then after these two, Malcolm of Scotland submits. Please note, it's not a full submission to commute, just uh, an agreement to keep the peace. But Canute had acted and he had shored up the northern border of his empire. And then things began to fall apart. And the trouble started in Norway. Word arrived that his nephew, Harkon, who, as I just said, was ruling Norway for him, was dead. Apparently he drowned while sailing between England and Norway, and Canute now had a major problem. He had no one to rule Norway for him. Meanwhile, the former claimant to the title of king, Olaf Haraldsson, was marching back with a big army of exiles to reclaim his throne. Canute had to improvise quickly, Luckily for him, events in Norway helped him immeasurably. So apparently as Olaf marched back into Norway, some of the locals got very excited by this. This included Olaf's 15-year-old cousin, a young man called Harald. And this Harald brought with him 600 men, apparently, to supplement Olaf. But the rest of Norway was not too happy at the prospective return of Olaf, so they raised an army and defeated him and killed him. And they also drove away his surviving supporters. And that 15-year-old kid, Harold, well, he had to flee all the way to the Kiev Rus. But he would return. And when he does, he'll be known by his new nickname, which he picked up along the way in Byzantium, Harold Hardruler, Harold Hardrada. Meanwhile, Canute had secured Norway, so now he had to place someone else in charge. And the person he picked was his other eldest son. See, it's easy to forget, Canute had married twice. The first time to an English woman called Ilfgifu, and the second time to Queen Emma of Normandy. And his son by Emma of Normandy was like his heir, Hartha Canute, who was busy running Denmark. But Canute, as far as we can tell, he liked to keep things flexible. Everything, including his personal relationships, just worked well in his head, and everybody else just had to cope with that. So, for example, he and Elf Gifu were still on talking terms, even if he had officially put her to one side. And she still hung around the court, as did Queen Emma. Talk about awkward. But it's about now that Canute's messy personal life seems to have become something he could use to his advantage, because now he can send his eldest son via his union with 
Elf Gifu, Sven Knutsen, over to run Norway for him. Sounds great. However, it must be said, even allowing for the anti-Elf Gifu Sveen propaganda that arose soon after, the Queen and her son made somewhat of a pig's ear of the situation over there. She sought to enforce Canute's taxation policies upon Norway, but did so in a very heavy-handed way, causing genuine hardships for people. To give her her due, she had genuinely tried to rule the Scandinavian nation via Scandinavian principles, but what Elf Gifu didn't realise was that there was a huge difference between how the Danes run things and how the Norse run things, and so the locals saw her and her son imposing a Danish way of life upon them all. The population came to resent the living hell out of Elf Gifu and Sveen, so much so that eventually in 1034, two things happened. The first is that the Norwegians began missing the man they used to hate so much, Olaf, that they proclaimed him the, quote, eternal king of Norway, unquote, and then made him a saint, and eventually made him the patron saint of Norway, no less. But the other thing they did in 1034, which is slightly more practical, is that the Norwegians rebelled against the couple. Elf Gifu and her son had to flee to Denmark. Meanwhile, while all this was going on, things in England went bad. In 1032, there was a drought, a serious one, causing probably a massive loss of crops. And then this was followed up by what became known as the, quote, Great Wildfire, unquote, where we imagine a whole bunch of local fires caused by unseasonably hot weather seem to all congregate together. This would have destroyed homes, surviving crops, livelihoods, and possibly even taken lives. It was all hands on deck maintaining England in the face of this, and we know that to layer another level of poop upon the land, that the winter of 1032 and 1033 was said to be an exceptionally harsh one. And then, just after this, we suspect that Canute started to fall seriously poorly, like really seriously poorly. We do not know what killed Canute, son of Sveen's Forkbeard, but some historians suspect that he and his family suffered from a serious congenital defect, perhaps resulting in strokes or cerebral aneurysms. And how did they justify this claim? Well, Canute was struck down and died in his late 30s or early 40s. His brother, Harold, had died in his mid to late 20s. His sons also all died in their mid 20s. Today, we would see an unrelated chronic condition, perhaps. To the people at the time, it probably seemed like the wrath of God, but we are aware that as the 1030s moved on, and in particular after 1033, Canute and his court became aware that the king was dying. Things started to fall apart slightly faster. Irish records say that Sithic, king of Dublin, witnessed his son being killed by the English, but we do not know why. And then, Canute faced a serious threat to his reign, in the form of his wife, Queen Emma's nephew, Duke Robert of Normandy, Robert the Devil. And his involvement in English affairs was to be a shape of things to come. Put simply, Robert the Devil, the rather bellicose Duke of Normandy, was enjoying the company of his cousins, 
They were the children of his aunt Emma of England and her first husband, Ethelred, King of England. The boys, the oldest called Edward Etheling and the younger one Alfred Etheling, had grown up in exile. They had travelled around a lot. They had survived the intervening years by the generosity and largesse of a large number of Norman and French nobles. And Robert liked them both. In fact, Robert was said to consider them like younger brothers. Now in time, Edward would become known as Edward the Confessor. And the church records say that Edward was a devout and pious Christian and almost became a priest and renounced his claim to the title. And that's why he's now known to us as Edward the Confessor. And, you know, yeah, don't believe a word of that. Edward was raised to be a king of England. He was of the House of Wessex, who were properly Christian. But the firstborn sons of English kings do not abdicate the throne to become priests. Don't talk rubbish. Edward and Alfred Aetheling had been raised to be warriors, nobles, leaders and rulers. And as we said, were getting on famously with their cousin, Duke Robert of Normandy. So much so, Duke Robert had an idea. And this idea really worked for him. Now we know from our last chapter as well, that when Robert got an idea into his head that everyone he feels should agree with, such as the idea, I should be in charge of Normandy and not my older brother, he would stop at nothing to make sure he got his idea done. So Robert's brilliant idea was simple. If Canute was allowing Denmark to be run by his son Harthur Canute, and he was allowing Norway to be run by his other son Sveen, then why not, and hear me out Canute, why not allow Edward, son of Ethelred, rule England for you? That way young Edward stops scrounging off the Normans and gets to be king. Canute, politely I would imagine, replies that he didn't really think this was a good idea. But Canute didn't realise. You simply did not say no to Robert the Devil. He throws what could best be described as a monumental early medieval hissy fit and decides that's it. He orders a massive fleet of ships to be constructed on the Normandy coast and that he will lead an army personally to place Edward Aetheling upon the throne of England. That's right folks, the Norman invasion of 1033 is on. Now, one of the reasons we don't hear too much about the Norman invasion of England in 1033 is that it never actually arrived. It set sail from the Normandy coast, sure, but then ran into a bunch of storms that blew it off course, and it ended up in Brittany. Now, Duke Robert was the kind of guy who, when life gave him lemons, he would squeeze the juice into somebody's eyes. In this case, Brittany had once been part of the Duchy of Normandy, until Robert's rebellion against his older brother, which had caused the residents to break away. And so now he was here with an army and everything. Might as well make use of it then, eh? So Robert the Devil and Edward Aetheling and a bunch of others took Brittany for Normandy. England had just had a year where they experienced a drought, a great fire and a brutally harsh winter and had now just avoided an actual invasion. 
Knut, however, realised how serious the situation had been now, and so he hastily arranged for Robert to get married. You see, Duke Robert was still shacked up with his concubine, the one that had given him his son William, so he was still on the market. Knut saw a chance. He hastily arranged for his widowed sister to marry the Norman Duke, and supposedly agreed that in principle Edward could hold the title of King of England at a later date, but the source that says he made this agreement is Norman, and they may be lying. We do know that Norman sources say that Robert, uh, quote, had married a sister of Canute, whom he had repudiated because she was hateful to him, unquote. Now, Canute was feared for his wrath and viciousness, and repudiating his sister Edith was going to be a big thing. But the lack of response to that insult suggested the king was very poorly. And then things got worse even faster. His son, Sveen, had turned up in Denmark along with his mother, Elfgifu, and they had asked his half-brother, Harthacanute, to give him some men so they could take the kingdom of Norway back. Arthur Canute, however, rightfully decided he should maybe consult with their father, Canute, as to what he should do, and so he sent messages over to England, but no reply ever came. Sven Knutson, who may have been injured fighting in Norway, or may have been suffering from the same malady as his father, died young, awaiting instruction from Canute. And then, on November the 12th in the year 1035, Canute, the overlord of Northern Europe, died in Winchester, aged probably about 45. And while his court probably knew it was coming, they seemed wholly unprepared for the chaos that followed. So immediately the question came up as to who should rule England? There were three major candidates. Firstly, you had Harthur Canute, Lord of Denmark, firstborn son of Canute and Queen Emma, and she was a power unto herself. Because of this, he was the strongest candidate, bar none. But then you had, as the second candidate, the slightly older Harold Harefoot, who was the younger son of Canute and Elfgifu. Emma and her party started spreading word that Harold wasn't actually Canute's son. But even with this PR campaign, Harold had several things going for him. One, he had now reunited with his mother, who had sailed from Denmark. And two, he was in England, unlike Harthur Canute. Meanwhile, there was a third candidate, because, as we know, in Normandy was Edward Aetheling, son of Aethelred and Queen Emma, who was the oldest of all three candidates, and actually had the most legitimate claim to the throne of England. For the residents of London, then, as 1035 came to a close, they would have realised that they faced a most drastic dilemma. England was without a king, and no one could decide who to choose. Suddenly the future seemed very dangerous indeed. The great and the good were assembled to Oxford, just down the Thames from London, where the Witangamot was summoned to meet and decide who should inherit Canute's domain. And it was here that London, now without this powerful Danish king breathing down their neck, was to once again state who they felt should be in charge. And 
just like it had up until the time before Canute arrived. The Kingdom of London was to decide who was their king and the rest of the country just had to cope with it. And London's choice? Harold Harefoot. Now this does appear to be kind of strange because it wasn't just the great and the good of London who made this choice. Crucially, it was the lithe men of London, the men of the fleet, the standing army navy of Canute State. They picked Harold Harefoot to be King of England. And these were mostly Scandinavians, or at least a mixture of Scandinavians and English. And the question you've got to ask is, why? There have been many reasons why the fleet of England decided to choose Harold Harefoot. Probably what influenced their choice was a combination of two factors going on in the background. Firstly, the choices of Harthur Canute and Harold seem to have been backed by the two most important men in England at the time. Harthur Canute was backed by Earl Godwin of Wessex, who London liked and all, but Harold was backed by Leofwine, the Earl of Mercia. And let's face it, London was always more Mercian than Wessexian. But also, well, the way that the Mercians put it forward, this wasn't a pick one or the other kind of choice. Leofwine was basically offering a compromise. Harthur Canute was over in Denmark. He didn't advocate picking Harold over him, his advocation was a pragmatic one. Proclaim Harold Harefoot as a regent stroke king ruling England on behalf and with his half-brother Canute. This way the Empire of Canute could, you know, still be together. Pragmatism was London's weakness. They seemed to have loved a good pragmatic solution. This way no one had to choose any final side. Godwin wanted Harthur Canute mostly because he was so tied into the new regime he wanted a Dane in charge of the throne to cement the ties he had made. But while we do not know if this was the deciding factor, we can assume that A. having Harold in the country and B. having London and the fleet of London back the claim was enough to sway the day. Harold Hereford, son of King Canute and Elfgifu of Mercia, became recognised as King of England. But not everyone was happy about this, and immediately England split. Godwin seemed furious, and very quickly he got all the royal mints south of the River Thames to mint coins bearing the name of King Harthur Canute upon them. Meanwhile, north of the River Thames, the Earl of Mercia got all the royal mints to make coins bearing Harold's name as king upon them. And London sat as it was on the River Thames, London's response shows exactly how London probably felt about the whole thing. They minted coins bearing the names of Harold, and they minted coins bearing the name of Harthacanute. I mean, that just demonstrates what London was like then. It was a Mercian city with a long history of fanatical loyalty to the kings of Wessex, now filled with a growing Danish population, seeking to follow a path that didn't force it to pick a side. London's been the grown-up in the room, oh, so no doubt the residents would have felt. Not picking a side, well, it meant there was no conflict. There was no need for armies. There was no damage to anywhere. 
Taxes could still be collected. Goods could be bought and paid for. Trade deals between England and Denmark could remain in place. See, London's stance in this shows the city kind of being exactly what we expect London to be in these kind of things. You know, the city acting in a way that we find, well, I find, recognisable today. They didn't want a profitable status quo torn up to fulfil the needs of somebody's political ego. Don't make me raise a fjord here, people. You won't like it if I have to raise a damn fjord. Arthur Kinute didn't help his cause by being too busy in Denmark. Mind you, he did have an excuse for being too busy in Denmark. Norway had picked the half-English son of a concubine and Olaf, a boy called Magnus, to become their new king. And Magnus was looking at Denmark with very hungry eyes. Arthur Canute needed to consolidate Denmark before he could sail off and claim his birthright in England. Meanwhile, King Harold played it very smart. He knew Queen Emma wanted him dead, so he remained mostly in Mercia, where he was beyond her reach, and also he had plenty of family ties. And we also have to add here that Earl Liefwine was probably related to him. Godwin was allied to Emma, and Queen Emma was in Winchester, sat at the royal court with her loyalist troops, and still retained control over the royal treasury, holding on to it in the name of her son. People suspected a crisis was about to break out. However, Harold Hereford played it very, very carefully. He sent his own men to Winchester to seize the treasury, but crucially left Emma in place which meant her men couldn't really fight to stop them. Meanwhile, another collaborator with Canute, the Archbishop of Canterbury, refused to crown Harold. But Harold I of England, again, seems to have played it cool. He never forced the issue. He was safe with his kin in Mercia. He was de facto king. And as long as Arthur Canute was busy in Denmark, he could just run things. He seemed totally down with the idea of maybe joint rulership, or perhaps even submitting to Arthur Canute being overlord back in Denmark. But Arthur Canute was busy, and time passed, and Harold began to get more comfy in his position. And then, Queen Emma jumped. Now, maybe it was because her hated rival Elf Gifu is now all-powerful because of Harold, or maybe her ambition couldn't wait for her lazy son to get off his backside back in Denmark. But we suddenly know that Queen Emma seems to withdraw her support from Arthur Canute. We'll go on to that why in a second. Pragmatically, however, that meant Earl Godwin of Wessex was kind of like the last man at a party, holding out for Arthur Canute against King Harold, when everyone else seems to have chosen Harold. Godwin had to change his song and change it fast, and so he did. Suddenly we see the corn makers he controlled now making compliant King Harold coins. And Harold seems to have been finally accepted as King of All England by 1036. We can only now imagine sometime around here he was crowned, and we've got to say, London's choice of king seems to have been accepted by the country again. Harold I now ruled England. All is good. But going on while that's happening, Queen Emma seemed to have switched her support from Arthur Canute 
to her oldest boys over in Normandy, Edward and Alfred Etherling. And now comes a really dark moment in English history. See, by 1035, Edward, eldest surviving son of Ethelred of England and Queen Emma of Normandy, started to use the title King of England. He was no longer a pawn in the great game of men and kings. He was now a player. He wanted the title. He felt he, not any offspring of Canute, should have it. And he started letting it be known he intended to take it. And what's more, over in Normandy, the Normans who loved Edward, as he was their kind of warrior king in the making, started spreading word that young Edward had actually been crowned back King of England before he'd fled the country 15 years earlier. So he wasn't claiming to be de jure King of England. Edward, son of Ethelred, was King of England. Edward's problem was that during this particular period of his exile, things were becoming dangerous across the sea. You see, his cousin, Robert the Devil, who'd uh, treated Edward and Alfred like brothers, he'd gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem in 1035, but he'd died in Edessa on the way back. And so his seven-year-old son, William, became the new Duke of Normandy under the control of a Regency Council. And we know that Edward advised and helped young William's Regency Council at first. But very quickly, Normandy showed why it had a reputation for being the most ruthless political snake pit in Europe. And everybody started playing some Norman reindeer games. What kind of Norman reindeer games do I refer to? Well, first of all, they all started playing as who can control little Duke William? And then after a few rounds of that, they then started playing, well, if I can't have him, no one can. And then a few months after that, they all started a healthy round of, well, let's just kill the little shit so we can pick someone else to be Duke. Normandy was becoming exceptionally violent and dangerous. And it was in this backdrop that Queen Emma sent word to her Norman-based sons. She wanted them to reclaim their throne. Now, there is much debate about the letters Emma wrote to her sons telling them to come back and take the throne of England. Some have said they were legitimate and others they were clever forgeries organized by Harold to trap Emma and the Norman-based Aethelings. It's quite a passionate debate. In the end, I tend to believe she did write the letters, but that's only because the tone and language match another letter she'd written at the same time to a rather depressed daughter over in the Holy Roman Empire. Anyway, Emma's letters goaded the two boys to try their hands. And so in 1036, the second Norman invasion took place. In fact, two invasions. Edward sailing from Normandy and Alfred from Flanders with support of the local Count of Flanders. The twin invasions in 1036 are really interesting for several reasons. One, the two brothers were technically rivals. Both were launching attempts to usurp the throne. And the chances are whomever won, if either of them did, probably wouldn't have shared it with his brother. But also, the two seem to be copying the tactic used by Canute on England itself 
and also what Canute did to Denmark and Norway, which was you didn't need a sizable army to take England. You just needed to cross with enough men to hold your own, and eventually you'd get local support to help you start a proper campaign. And both young Aethelings seem to be working on similar intelligence. Someone, probably their mother Emma and her supporters, were keeping the boys up to date with the situation in England, and they based their tactics on this accordingly. Edward, the older boy, self-proclaimed King of England, sailed from Normandy to Southampton. Now maybe he expected Godwin, who was supposedly the last man holding out for Harthur Canute, to see the prudence of swapping to him, and Edward and Godwin could join forces to depose Harold. But Edward was working on old and bad intelligence. Godwin had swapped to Harold's side now, and as such, when Edward arrived, he found himself facing a force designed to repel him. By all accounts, a sharp battle followed, and Edward's forces won the day. Alas, while he had won and showed himself to be a pretty good general, there was no way Edward could exploit the victory, his forces were too small, and so he basically had his men raid Southampton, gather up as much loot as they could, and return back to Normandy. Meanwhile, his baby brother Alfred had clearly heard that the Archbishop of Canterbury was being some kind of anti-Harold holdout, and so wanted to make a beeline for there, and landed in Kent. But again, Godwin was ready and soon intercepted Alfred's larger force with an even larger body of men. A truce was arranged, and what follows is one of the most controversial and unclear stories of this era. As far as we can tell, Godwin agreed to escort the Aetheling Alfred either to his mother or to London, and so Alfred agreed to allow his large force of men return to their ships. And somewhere along the way, either ordered by Godwin trying to prove his loyalty to Harold, or ordered by Harold himself, Alfred, son of King Aethelred of England and Queen Emma, was taken off, and he and his bodyguard were blinded. The act of blinding was brutal. It probably didn't so much involve someone poking you in the eye, more somebody gouging out your eye. And in Eli, Alfred, son of Aethelred, died of his horrendous injuries. Everyone blamed Godwin, but any which way, Godwin had just proven his loyalty to Harold. And Harold was more secure now, as Emma had just been caught trying to instigate an invasion. With Emma now exiled to Flanders, Aetheling Edward now back in Normandy, and Harold seemingly secure in England, London must have breathed a sigh of relief that maybe, maybe could things could hold off and be stable for a while, that under this new son of Canute, maybe some kind of long-term peace could be established. For me, while I have no evidence to back this up, I think Harold began to move beyond his traditional mercy and safe havens. I think he began to visit southern centres of power, in particular Oxford, and above all, London. Now, this is my personal belief, although I have very little to base it on, but it's my story as narrator, so I'll say it so, that Harold basically began to spend increased time in his father's residence upon Thorny Island, what we today call Westminster. I'll give the evidence for that next chapter, but uh, I just got to remind you that, again, this is just my opinion, and others can and probably will disagree.
be that as it may. By 10.40, things were looking up and then they were looking down because news arrived that Hartha Knut of Denmark was in Flanders where he met his mother and he'd also brought a massive force of Danes. Whatever deals he had made to leave Denmark running in his absence and whatever peace he had established with the new Norwegian King Magnus, we don't need to care about for a chapter or two. All we need to do is focus on right now is on the very precarious situation. Queen Emma and Harthacanute are in Flanders with a large fleet and army ready to invade. Harold and his mother Elfgifu are in England and hoping to count on the support of the powerful English magnates like Lifwen and Godwin. And the residents of London, the Lysmen of London, who committed themselves to the cause of King Harold, well, if battle was due, they were to be in the midst of it. And then, just as suddenly, on March 17th, 1040, King Harold of England died, quite suddenly. Cut down in his youth, the reasons not given, but given the sudden death of his father, his uncle, and maybe his brother, it could be due to that undiagnosed congenital defect that was afflicting his dynasty. And suddenly, the way was open for Harthacanute to take the throne of England. Only, everyone had just spent all their political energy and all their political capital securing Harold to the throne of England. And now, like a recently dumped partner turning up at your wedding day, the jilted Harthacanute was due to arrive any minute. But with him came a massive fleet of Vikings, as large as anything his father or grandfather had ever brought. London was facing another annoyed member of the Gormson dynasty, about to become their overlord. They must have had a sinking feeling in the pits of their stomachs. And that's it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back next week for chapter 39 of the story of London. If you want to read along within the next week, I'll be putting up a script that will include pictures and maps and other things I find along the way. And it's a rough copy of the script, but hopefully it'll be, you know, just as enjoyable as this. I'd like to thank everybody for their support and continued kind words. It's been fantastic. All right, that's quite enough for me. I'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>